All right. Thank you very much, worship team, Mark. Appreciate you guys. Good to see you this morning. Hope you're all doing well. If you would turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we've been working our way through several books at the same time, Revelation, Daniel, Acts, and 1 Corinthians, and now we're to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and the topic of this chapter is marriage and singleness, and so we're going to begin looking at this this morning. Uh, Many of you have seen the movie Princess Bride, and you're familiar with that movie, and there's a famous scene in there where... Um, uh, Princess Buttercup and uh, the, uh, the Prince Humperdinck are getting married and this priest is performing the ceremony and, and for those who've seen the movie, you know he uh, uses a, a uh, funny uh, way of speaking as he leads the uh, ceremony and he talks about marriage as what brings us together today. <laughs> Marriage is that blessed arrangement, that dream within a dream. And it goes on from there, and it's one of our favorite scenes in the movie. But I was thinking about that. I actually found online where you can actually uh, perform your whole wedding ceremony in light of the Princess Bride. And it lays out exactly what the minister is supposed to say. And it, throughout the whole ceremony... The minister is supposed to talk like that. Now, I think in Josh and Joy's wedding, I used a little bit of that. And so um, I'm not opposed to referencing that in a, a marriage ceremony at all for various reasons. But to do the whole thing like that strikes me uh, in two ways. It strikes me as dishonoring to the very serious man- matter of marriage and It also seems, I think, in the context of the movie, if you know what's going on in the movie, um, maybe there's a connection between how the priest is talking and what is actually happening in the marriage. That there's this distorted um, verbal uh, leading of the, the wedding, which is a picture of the distorted parts that are coming together in the marriage itself. There's a distortion of wedding and marriage. And so in 1 Corinthians 7, that's really what we have. We have Paul dealing with some distortions with regard to thinking about marriage and singleness. And he's trying to help the believers in Corinth to think through uh, God's perspective on marriage and on singleness. And um, as a result, he's encouraging them to think about it from a godly perspective. Uh, The statement, right, Uh, beneath the heading there says God created us to be holy and happy in Jesus through trust and love. And if you think about all that the Bible says, that's one way of uh, answering the question that the Puritans like to ask, what is the chief end of man? And they would say the chief end of man is to glorify and enjoy God. But to glorify God is to be holy. To enjoy God is to find our happiness in God. And we know that that only happens through Jesus. It's in Jesus, it's through faith in Jesus, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And ultimately, we're to live our lives uh, trusting God's word and loving in light of God's word. And so what we find in these first initial verses in 1 Corinthians 7 
is an issue with the, the issue of holiness. When it says God created us to be holy, that's actually what was uh, being wrestled with in the church in Corinth. And they came up with some interesting ideas about what that would require. And so you could say what Paul is dealing with, the distortion that he's dealing with, is a concern for holiness that's gone wrong. And so that's what we'll see in this passage. What I plan to do is kind of work more slowly through this passage than I have been working through these passages because, number one, there's so much in our culture that is distorted with regard to marriage and with regard to sexuality. And so I think it might do us some good to really take some time to think about what Paul actually says here in light of all of these things. And in this chapter, there's really something for everyone. Paul talks about uh, marriage between believers. He talks about marriage between believers and unbelievers. He talks about singleness in light of divorce, singleness in light of widowhood. Uh, He talks about uh, the issue of um, being engaged and those kinds of things. And so there's something for everyone, you could say, in this passage because he touches on a lot of different things. And so we'll look at the Christian in marital intimacy, the Christian in celibacy, the Christian in divorce, the Christian in various circumstances, because that's a big part of what he's uh, having to address here with regard to how circumstances should play into the issue of holiness. The Christian in wisdom regarding marriage and singleness. And ultimately, it's all meant to remind us that Jesus is an able and willing Savior for you and me. He delivers us from the penalty of sin, and he delivers us from the power of sin. And so ultimately, our our hope, whatever our circumstances are, our hope is in Jesus uh, for the forgiveness we need and for the power we need to live in a way that is truly pursuing our, our holiness and our happiness in God. And so what I'd like to do is um, read the very first part of um, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And I, I want us to think about this chapter in light of all that's going on in our country. Uh, we're redefining marriage. We're on the road to um, potentially legalizing and encouraging every kind of sexual activity that you can think of. We're, we're on that pathway because of the logic that we're using. We're actually demanding the right to kill for the sake of the freedom to live like we want to live in this area. Um, We want the freedom to define ourselves in whatever way we want or feel like we should. And we want the freedom to end any relationship in any situation, under any circumstances. We basically want to get rid of all boundaries. We want to eliminate God. We want to eliminate uh, right and wrong. And we just want to be free to do anything and everything. And we are under the impression that you can be happy without being holy. And that's a lie. It's the lie of Satan. God is both holy and he's infinitely happy. And he wants to bring us into his happiness. But he can't do that without bringing us into his holiness. 
And so holiness and happiness go together. And our society doesn't understand that. And they think that happiness is found apart from holiness. And that's a lie. And so Paul is dealing with all kinds of uh, various wrong ideas and lies that the church in Corinth is, is wrestling with. And so I'd like to begin by just reading the first six verses today and having us think through this a little bit. In verse 1 it says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. This is the word of God. Interesting, if you have an ESV, or if you were to read the ESV, there's some differences in how it's translated. In verse 1, it says, now concerning the things. The ESV says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So he's He's talking about the questions that they raised. They wrote him and said, we have questions. And whereas in the beginning he was addressing reports about what was going on in the church, now he's actually beginning to address their own questions to him about various matters. Um, In the ESV, it says, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So the phrase not to touch a woman is referring to sexual relations. That's what the ESV makes a little more clear. In verse 2, it says, because of the, temp- of the temptation to sexual immorality, Paul, um, according to the New American Standard, simply says because of immoralities. But he's highlighting the issue of temptation, which is understood in light of what he says later on. In verse 3, it says the husband should give to his wife her, and this is according to the ESV, conjugal rights. Uh, Conjugal comes from, I think, from the French, uh, meaning relating to marriage. So it's talking about marital rights, and in particular, the right of physical intimacy. And so, depending on your translation, it may be clear what Paul is talking about, Uh, or more clear what Paul is talking about one way or another. And I just want to start by highlighting the fact that when it comes to the issue of uh, physical intimacy, um, and when we were uh, raising our kids, we would talk about that in terms of acting like you're married. Uh, That's the way we talk to our kids. We say, you know, um, they're acting like they're married, but they're really not married, and so that's That's something God says that ought to wait until marriage. Well, depending on your experience um, and depending on how you think about physical intimacy um, because of our culture, you can have a really good attitude about it or a really poor attitude. Um, You can see it as a hindrance. You might even see it as... um, normally sinful and misused. 
Um, it's interesting, Augustine of, of Hippo is considered one of the greatest theologians of the church, and he lived back in the 4th and 5th century A.D. Um, he said, uh, Thou, speaking to God, Thou hast made us for Thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in Thee. And it would be interesting, um, or I should say, easy to miss how important that statement is in light of what we're talking about here if you did not know his history. Augustine uh, was a very promiscuous person. He was involved in sexual immorality. Uh, He actually had a concubine for over 10 years. And he himself said he was basically enslaved to it. And it took the grace of God to set him free. And um, he, interestingly enough, kind of pictures what Paul is addressing at the end of chapter 6 when he talks about uh, sex outside of marriage. But he also pictures what we find in chapter 7 when Paul is dealing with the issue of whether or not it would be better just to avoid physical intimacy altogether, even if you're married. Because he went from being very focused on physical intimacy, and in his case, it was outside of marriage, and seeing it as his all in all. Uh, He was actually afraid of trusting in Christ because he might lose that part of his life, and he wasn't sure he could live without that part of his life. But he actually was saved, and he was actually freed from that lifestyle. And yet he went to the other extreme in one sense, He would affirm, as a theologian, that the Bible teaches that uh, marriage is a good thing. But he would also say that he thought that um, spiritual perfection could best be pursued if you were celibate, if you did not have any physical intimacy with someone else. He thought if you really wanted to be um, most like Christ, and that was your greatest concern, that would be the best path to choose. And I would say that was an overreaction to what God saved him out of. That it's not consistent with what Paul is saying here. It's not consistent with all that Paul says here, I should say. And so um, Paul is beginning to address the question of... um, what is the best way to be holy in light of the culture that we live in? Uh, the Corinthians lived in a culture that's, um, in some sense, worse than our culture, but it's the direction in which our culture is moving. Uh, their culture was very open to all kinds of um, sexual activity and involvement. And so you've got these Christians who are coming out of that And they're wrestling with the question, just like Augustine was, what is the best way in light of the temptation to sin in this area, what is the best way for me to pursue holiness? And so Paul had spent 18 months there and taught them um, all kinds of truths. And now he's coming back and he's having to remind them of the kinds of things that he taught them. That's why in this letter in 1 Corinthians, he'll say 10 different times, 
Do you, do you not know? Do you not know? Meaning, do you not remember what I taught you over that year and a half? You need to apply in this situation what I taught you. What he says is, now concerning things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Some people think that is Paul's statement. And that he's saying, you know, I agree with your question about this, that it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Others think he's simply quoting the Corinthians. And so if you notice, if you have an ESV, they have that phrase in quotation marks. The NASB does not. And so some see it as a quote, Paul quoting what they said. Others see it as a statement from Paul. Um, But either way, the not to touch a woman refers to physical intimacy. The idea of touch is the idea to hold on to, to grasp, so to speak. It means to touch in a particular way. It's reflected in Proverbs 6 when it says, so so is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. So it's a particular kind of touching that's being reflected there. And the question is, is it good not to touch a woman in this way? The idea of good is, is it spiritually advantageous? Is it actually spiritually necessary to avoid this, even if you're married? There are people who are married or people who are married and thinking, we need to get a divorce so we can be more holy. That's what was going on here in their minds. Would it be more useful for me to actually not to be involved in this at all? And that that was what Augustine wrestled with. He didn't come to the exact same conclusion, but he did come to the conclusion that, you know, we shouldn't look down on marriage. It's a good thing. It's a good gift. But I think... Uh, avoiding it altogether would be a little better. And Paul actually speaks against that. And so one of the things we can commend the Corinthians for doing, those who were doing this, in light of all their problems, and they had a lot of problems in this church, there were some who were really asking the question, how can I be more holy? That's a great question to ask. We have to ask ourselves, do we ask ourselves that question? How can I be more holy? Meaning, how can I be more like Christ? And what can I do differently to grow to be more like Christ? So we can commend those in the church in Corinth for actually asking that question and wrestling with that question, which all of us should uh, wrestle with. Like Paul said, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him, to be pleasing to the Lord. So they're wrestling with the question, Would it be more pleasing and would I be more likely to grow more quickly and more easily if I were not involved in this kind of physical intimacy? The reality is they were thinking that holiness is primarily a matter of separating from wrong people and not engaging in certain activities. When I was growing up, I had a friend who got into what a lot of people would call a fundamentalist church. And in this fundamentalist church, there was a long list of uh, thou shalt nots. Thou shalt not go to movies. Thou shalt not do this. Thou shalt not do that. And it was a picture of holiness is about what you don't do. And so if you just don't go to movies and if you don't um, play cards or if you don't do whatever those activities might be, then you'll be a holy person. 
That's the kind of spirit in which they're thinking. Maybe if we just don't do this activity, regardless of whether or not God says it's okay or not, uh, maybe we would just be better off. It's interesting, uh, C.S. Lewis um, talked about the fact that in his day and time, he said if you were to ask 20 people what the greatest virtue is, he would say most people in his day and time would say unselfishness was the greatest virtue. And he said, you know what? I think, you know, 100 years ago or so, if you were to ask godly people what the greatest virtue was, they would have said love. And he says, what's the difference between saying unselfishness is the greatest virtue versus saying love is the greatest virtue? He says unselfishness is a negative thing. This is what I'm not going to be. This is what I'm not going to do. Love is a positive thing. This is what I'm going to do to pursue your good. That's what love is all about. It's pursuing the good of someone else. And so he says that people who are thinking of the, the greatest good as being unselfishness are really focusing on themselves. Whereas the person who says the greatest good is love is focusing on others. And so he says, that's a real problem when our focus is all on me and what I'm not doing rather than my focus being on how can I love the person in front of me to the glory of God. Um, and so I think that's the spirit of what Paul is addressing here. And it's interesting in First Thessalonians that Paul makes a connection, a very clear connection between love and holiness. In First Thessalonians 3.11 says, now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So he says, I pray that God will cause you to increase and abound in love for each other, so that you'll become holy. So you can't separate it. In God's mind, holiness isn't about what you don't do, per se, and what you're keeping yourself from, per se. It's about love. Now, love at times requires me not to do certain things and requires me to keep myself from certain things, and yet we can be very, very pharisaical, and they had all kinds of rules about what not to do. And they got upset at Jesus because he was going around loving people. And all they could see was rule breaker, rule breaker, rule breaker. And they were very unloving, even though they're very concerned about what not to do. And so Paul is addressing this fundamental issue of love. And he'll go on to say in 1 Corinthians 13, in talking about spiritual gifts, that the real issue here is love. You guys aren't loving each other. And the same thing is really happening here as well. Well, obviously when he said it, says it is good for a man not to touch a woman, he's talking about also the issue of women not touching men. It goes both ways. And one of the interesting things is if you read these verses closely, he talks about um, the husband fulfilling his duty to his wife and the wife fulfilling her duty to her husband. He says the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, but also... The husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. 
In this area, he says, you guys are equal. You're on an equal plane. Both husband and wife are equal in this matter. And so he's emphasizing the mutual benefit in marriage for husband and wife and the mutual obligations. And so he's not simply saying, wife, you need to do this for your husband or or husband, you do this for your wife. He's saying, you need to do this for each other. This is a mutual obligation, a mutual thing that you need to think about. Well, obviously, um, the basic concern for the Corinthians was, um, even in marriage, maybe it would be better if we did not have any physical intimacy. And the question is, why would they ever think like that? Well, again, it goes back to... Uh, the society they were in, the culture they were in, their own experiences. Um, it's very easy for us to assume that because of what we've experienced, then the only way that this could ever, ever uh, play out in our lives would be really in a bad way. And there are people who've been hurt in this area, and they have a real hard time believing that it could be a good gift from God. And then there are others who look at society and in society, um, sex and sin seem to go together most of the time in terms of the way it's talked about. It's not talked about as the good gift from God that it is. And so we tend to think about physical intimacy as being something dirty, something bad, something wrong. And so people can be saved and begin to think, well, maybe... You know, I'd be better off if I had just avoided this altogether. Maybe this is inherently evil, or maybe it's just evil because we're evil and we just can't do this right. And so it'd be better if we just kind of uh, not uh, participated in it and just avoided it altogether. And that's why Calvin could talk about the fact that there in the Roman Catholic Church was the idea that we should just have monks and nuns. That's the basis, or at least part of the basis, for having monks and nuns. You know, you take a vow of celibacy that you might be more holy. And Paul is saying that's really not what is going on. In fact, um, one of the popes, Pope Gregory, back in 600 A.D., argued based on, in part, there are other scriptures as well, but uh, based on, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1, he argued for the celibacy of the priesthood. He took that statement, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, as being a statement from God, and therefore a statement of this is how you can best pursue holiness, and that was part of the basis for arguing for a celibate priesthood. And just in our own country and culture, just in the last Several years, we've seen the fruit of that, the fruit of arguing for a celibate priesthood and how much sexual sin has resulted from that because it's not being understood, it's not being pursued in the way that Paul talks about this right here. And so what people have done is they, they've done what uh, would be done if you were to say, the Bible says... There is no God. Is that true? It is definitely true. Psalm 14.1, you can read it. But in its context, it says, The fool has said in his heart, 
there is no God. Okay, so does the Bible say there is no God? Yes. But you have to understand that statement in its context. Does the Bible say it is good for a man not to touch a woman? Yes. But in the context, it's not saying what the Roman Catholic Church is saying. And so the point is, we have to really read our Bibles like we read our texts. Okay, when you get a text from someone, uh, let's say you got a lengthy text in the midst of that text. It said, when I came upon her in the store, I lost my head. Okay, how would you understand that? Well, you'd understand it based on, you'd probably read that very carefully. You'd read what was before it and what was after it to try to understand what is the meaning of, I, when I came upon her in the store, I lost my head. What, what's going on there? You'd probably think about, okay, who is this text from? And what is the topic that this person is writing about? You would think about um, the fact that maybe she wasn't decapitated at that point, but she's talking figuratively, right? That the, like the word, uh, like the do not touch a woman is a euphemism for something else, for one thing, and to lose my head is a euphemism for something else, right? Uh, you would think about what is said in the immediate context of the text, but you'd also think about it in the broader context of what you know about that person and all that they're going through. We do those kinds of interpretations without thinking about it. We don't have to pull out you know, this guide to interpreting what people say or what people write by going through the grammatical context, the historical context, the literary context, the immediate context, and the whole big context. We don't do that in terms of checking off our boxes. We do it unconsciously if we're interpreting well. Whenever we leave some of those things out, that's when we misunderstand what people are saying. When we leave out some of those things that are really part of a good understanding of what someone has written, you have to consider the words, who wrote it, what kind of language they might be using, the context in which they've said certain things, and what you actually know about the other things they've said as well. And so um, that's a very practical thing. I don't know if you do that or not when you read the Bible, but I would encourage you to do that when you read the Bible. You know, if you want one rule for understanding the Bible well, it's context, 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 context. You have to read it in its context, or you can easily walk away like the Roman Catholic Church has, and apply it in a way that Paul never intended, and it's wreaked a lot of havoc throughout the history of our world. And so we don't want to use the Bible to wreak havoc in our lives or in the lives of other people. We want to use the Bible to truly pursue love, and that's why sometimes it takes a little effort uh, to understand the context in which things are written, and to really understand what the Bible is saying. Um, Let me just ask a very practical question that came up, uh, has come up because of uh, things like the Me Too movement in this context. When we talk about just the idea of um, the whole issue of touching a woman, Uh, back uh, when the Me Too movement was going on, there was the whole issue of whether or not we should stop hugging in church. 
don't know if you read any of that or saw any of that, but there were people that were raising the question, in light of the Me Too movement, maybe we should just stop touching each other in church. And the question is, is there a problem with touching in church? Is, Paul, is that really what Paul is talking about? Um, whether it's because of the Me Too movement or otherwise, you know, one of the things that young people have wrestled with for a long time is uh, what's okay and what's not okay uh, in a dating relationship. And what Paul is saying here in this context is the kind of touching he's talking about is for married people. It's within marriage. He's talking about a kind of touching that is a is about a sexual kind of touching. And it's helpful, I think, to realize that even in the book of Solomon, the Song of Solomon, which is a book about, it's ultimately pointing to Christ, but it's starting with the marriage relationship because marriage is a picture of our relationship with Christ. But Song of Solomon isn't just about Christ and the church. It's also about the relationship between a husband and wife and, a, and the physical intimacy between a husband and wife in marriage. But one of the things it says in that book three different times is, it says that you do not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. It starts off in Song of Solomon 2.7. Basically, what the Bible says is we should not do anything outside of marriage that awakens someone else's physical or sexual desire. We should not do that. We should seek to guard that, and we should seek to guard our own hearts in that area. So I should not touch someone in a way uh, that is going to move in that direction. Now, is a side hug going to do that? It shouldn't, but if that person were to tell me, you know, I really have a problem when you do that, then we shouldn't do that. But normally there are other things that have to happen. So the question is, what do we do or not do? That's why First Timothy 5 could say, Paul is talking to a, a young man, Timothy, and he says, Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. Okay, tax on to the younger women in all purity, meaning that you need to make sure that in your relationship with the younger women, you are guarding them and guarding yourself with regard to inappropriate pursuit, inappropriate touching, and that kind of thing. And so uh, Paul is talking about the issue of touching that's related to physical intimacy, and it's meant to take place in the bonds of marriage. Well, in verses 2 through 6, what he does is he talks about the importance of this in marriage, because the question has been raised, can we just avoid this if we're married? Wouldn't it be better if we avoided this? And wouldn't we be more holy if we did? What Paul says here is that it is important in marriage, but it's not essential. It's not all important. And I want to explain what I mean by that, because we live in a society where society says it's essential and all important. And it's so important that uh, we're willing to maintain abortion 
so that people can continue to do this in whatever way they want, whenever they want it. Um, and secondly, um, it's so exalted so much in our society that we're willing to start teaching elementary kids about it. That, that's how committed we are to people doing whatever they want, whenever they want it, because we believe it is the ultimate essential good enjoyment on the planet. And therefore, we're going to um, remove any hindrances to it, and we're going to teach people uh, at five years old about it. And we're going to let them transition if they want to, uh, if, and all those kinds of things. That's what's going on in our society. And it's the, totally different from what um, Corey Tin Boom and her father experienced. Uh, Corey Tin Boom... Uh, remember, she went through the Holocaust and uh, in Germany, and um, she asked her father when she was very, very young, after coming home from school one day, about sex sin. And she was probably in elementary school, and they were, I think, riding on a, a train at that point. And when they were about to get off, he said, uh, Corey, could you uh, carry my luggage for me? She tried to pick it up and she said, no, Dad, it's too heavy for me. And he said, uh, the topic you brought up is just like that. It's too heavy for you. Uh, later on, uh, you can learn about that and we can talk about that. But you're too young for those things right now. It's too heavy for you. We are doing our children a great disservice by what we're exposing them to we are abusing our children as a society by moving in that direction. It's wrong. It's terribly wrong. And uh, we need to understand that and think about that because um, Paul is arguing for the importance of physical intimacy in the bounds of marriage. But we need to understand he's not arguing that it's most essential or most important like our society seems to be arguing right now. There's a book that Jan and I used when we first got married by Tim LaHaye called The Act of Marriage. And I thought about that title, and I don't know why they picked that title, but it focuses on the physical intimacy in marriage. And I would say if somebody took that as this is the act of marriage, this is what marriage is all about, that would be very wrong. Because marriage isn't about this physical act. Marriage is about love. The act of marriage is love. It's not physical intimacy. Love is to shape that area, but that's not what it's all about. And so we have to be careful of, in our own culture, um, basically adopting the viewpoint that our culture has because it's the air that we breathe, and we have to be careful of that. And that's why I want to take the time to help us think through this because um, we can be easily misled in light of where we are. So Paul is arguing that marriage is the norm. How does he do that? He says in verse 2, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. So think about what he says. He says, each man is to have his own wife, each woman is to have her own husband. He basically says that is a command. It's in, it's in the form of a command. Um, someone has said, let every man have 
is not a permission, it is a command. There will be exceptions, but Paul leaves no doubt as to what is normal. So Paul is saying, the the ideas that you have about pursuing holiness are not consistent with what God has ordained to be normal. Um, And so we have to ask ourselves, what kind of marriage is Paul talking about here? And it's very clear, he says, each man is to have his own wife, each woman is to have her own husband. One man, one woman. So it speaks against polygamy, it speaks against homosexuality, and it says that you can actually identify a man and identify a woman. It's hard for a man to have a wife if we can't define what a woman is. And that's where we are as a culture. Uh, People don't want to define what a woman is or what a man is because it would limit things. It would limit what could or could not be done. Lord Jesus said in answer to a question about divorce, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The reality is, um, C.S. Lewis could say that the kinds of things Paul uh, is talking about here are the most unpopular, it's the most unpopular virtue in Christianity. Uh, Sex only in marriage. But defining marriage as between a man and a woman has become one of the most unpopular things as well. And as Christians, that's what we stand for. And we will increasingly be uh, rejected because of that, attacked because of that, because it speaks against the whole agenda. But what Paul says, interestingly enough, is he says, because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. So he's saying, not that this is the only reason, but he's saying in light of what you're talking about, the issue of Um, purity, the issue of holiness in this area, isn't pursued by just trying to run away from marriage and physical intimacy. It's actually to be pursued by a proper context and proper pursuit of physical intimacy. Um, They were thinking that, you know, maybe we could glorify God if we just did not have this as a part of our lives. It says at the end of chapter 6, you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Paul is arguing the way you glorify God in your body as a married person is by honoring one another and actually having an appropriate physical intimacy. Um, He says it's important because of temptation. Calvin could say, as he had spoken of fornication back in chapter 6, he now appropriately proceeds to speak of marriage, which is the remedy for avoiding fornication. So in chapter 6, he talked about uh, the issue of all kinds of sexual sins. If you look back in uh, verse 9, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. Later on, he'll talk about... um, Uh, In verse 15, um, shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? So he's talking about, in chapter 6, all the various ways in which 
physical intimacy is outside of the boundaries that God has provided. But in chapter 7, he's talking about the, the proper boundaries in which that is to be pursued. And so you can go to Leviticus 18 and see a, a more extensive list of how those, uh, of the boundaries that God has provided for us. Um, the most, one of the most important things he does in chapter 6 is, as he says in verse 11, such were some of you which is saying that even if you have gone outside the boundaries that God has established in this area, you can be forgiven and you can be set free, which is what Augustine experienced. He says, such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Just like... um, Augustine could say, you know, I was afraid to entrust myself to Jesus because I didn't think I could live differently. I didn't think I could live without this kind of physical intimacy. But then he came to see what Paul is saying there is that there is forgiveness in the blood of Jesus and there's power in the blood of Jesus to set us free so that we can live within the boundaries that God has uh, established and actually receive the blessings and the benefits of it. Well, he goes on from there, and uh, let me just uh, raise a question. Um, He says, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. He'll go on to talk about the exceptions to that. But it raises the question, should a single person be looking to get married, and looking to get married sooner rather than later? And Paul would say, I believe, in light of what he just said, yes. Now, we need to take into consideration some other things he's going to say, because he's going to talk about the issue of the the gift of celibacy. He's going to talk about the issue of circumstances and wisdom and those kinds of things. So the rest of the chapter is going to inform uh, what I'm saying right here. But he's laying down a principle that if you don't have the gift of celibacy, then you ought to be pursuing marriage. And in light of the temptation to immorality, you should be pursuing it sooner rather than later. That's, that's the implication. Because otherwise, then you open yourself up to temptation. I heard someone say that um, this man was talking with another young man, and the young man said, you know, I think I have the gift of celibacy. And the pastor who was talking to him said, Uh, do you have a problem with porn? And he said, yes. And the pastor said, you don't have the gift of celibacy. If you are tempted in this area to sin, then you have not been given the gift of celibacy. And so what he's saying is, uh, Paul is arguing that a remedy to fleeing immorality so that we will flee immorality is actually marriage. That is Uh, an important part of God's remedy. That's why he could speak so forcefully in saying uh, each man is to have his own wife. Each woman is to have her own husband. Um, And we should think about that. Um, But like I said, there are other things to bring into consideration because he actually, if you look at the rest of the chapter, he will say, uh, but if you can not be married, then don't be married. If you can wait, then wait. 
and because there's this present distress that he's dealing with. So there's more to be said, and we'll get to that later on. But I just want to make the point that he's making the point that this is the norm, and this is actually part of God's remedy for fighting sexual sin. It's marriage. And in our society, people are getting married later and later in life. And sexual temptation is all around us, and it's as great as it's ever been in our society. And we have to ask ourselves, are we listening to what the Bible is saying here? And should we consider more uh, closely what it is saying in light of these things? Because it's very similar to where the Corinthians were in various ways. What he does is, he goes on to verse 3 and he says, The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. To fulfill means to uh, render or pay back. The word duty is the same word for debt. It means an obligation. The picture that Paul is painting here is that there is an obligation for you to not become celibate as a married person, but to actually engage in physical intimacy with your spouse. You are obligated to do that. You don't have the option of being celibate in marriage. Now, obviously, there there are things that might cause that to be the case, but he's talking about a voluntary kind of situation because of, quote, spiritual reasons. That's what he's dealing with here. Now, the idea of rendering is found in Romans 13, when he says, render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Basically, when Paul says that you need to fulfill the obligation to your wife or to your husband, he's saying that you need to fulfill what love calls you to do. That God has called you to love your spouse in this way. That this is an important part of marriage. And so that is the idea of what Paul is thinking about. Um, Let me just move on to one other thing and try to wrap this up because we're just about out of time here. Paul would go so far as to say this in verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, if you want to start a fight, just read that at your workplace. The wife does not have authority over her own body. My body, my right, my choice, or whatever. So what is Paul saying here? Paul is arguing that there is a right that your spouse has to your body in terms of the issue of physical intimacy. Not that they can dictate everything you eat or everything you do, but in terms of this area of physical intimacy, there is an obligation because the other person has a right. Um, In the Old Testament, there are verses that talk about the fact that if a a man um, takes a slave from another culture to be uh, a wife of his, but he will not provide food and clothing and conjugal rights to her, but wants to reduce it and, and focus on his other wives, 
and he is to set her free. That conjugal rights are just as important as food and clothing. That there is a right for a woman to expect that her husband is going to provide for her uh, food and clothing and also conjugal or marital rights in this area. And why is that? Well, it's because of the spiritual union. The Bible says as married people, we're no longer separate individuals. The Bible says that we are one. In Mark 10, it says the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Paul could go so far as to say in Ephesians 5 that in order to love himself, the husband has to love his wife. So if you don't love your wife, then you're not loving yourself, Paul says, because of the spiritual union that the husband and the wife have. And so there's more going on here than what we might realize. Um, Paul's going to go on to say, you know, don't deprive one another except by agreement and those kinds of things. And we'll talk more about that next week and, and go move on. But I just want to highlight the fact that what Paul is arguing for here is that our, our culture is in this ditch where um, physical intimacy inside and outside of marriage is everything. And we can overreact to that and say, no, it's really nothing. And Paul says, no, it's important. Now, it might be hindered by certain things. It might be a challenge for certain reasons. But it is a good gift from God. And when used appropriately, when um, pursued out of love, it actually uh, furthers the spiritual union and the uh, union of the husband and wife. It blesses their union and it glorifies God. That you don't glorify God by running away from it as a married person. You glorify God by enjoying it as a married couple. And so... What we want to do as we think about this is just to ask ourselves, basically, does my view of marriage and physical intimacy outside and inside of marriage reflect what the Bible says or does it reflect what my culture says? Or does it simply reflect my own experience or my own prejudices because of my experience? Because God does call us to holiness But if we're married, he he calls us to a holiness that embraces all that marriage was meant to be. Let's pray. Father, we just pray and ask that you would help us as we think through these things, as we seek to understand what your word says and apply them to the culture we're in. There's so many things, Father, in our culture that are dishonoring to marriage and distorting of marriage and the physical relationship. And we all are exposed to the same air. And it's more than likely that we all have attitudes and thoughts and, and uh, ideas that are not consistent with what we find in your word. And so I pray that you would deliver us from lies, from distortions, from dishonorable ideas and things, and that you would help us to see that marriage is a good gift that physical intimacy in marriage is a good gift, and that the boundaries that you've placed are for our good, that we might be holy 
and that we might be happy, truly happy in you, and that we might truly love other people. So please help us, Father, as we wrestle with these things. And I pray that as we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper, that we would be reminded of the forgiveness that is to be found in Christ in light of our sins and our failures in this area, and that there's power to be enjoyed to live in the way that you've called us to live. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.